0: Welcome to Cover Story, a podcast by New Books Network devoted to long-form journalism. Today we're talking to Texas-based writer Sarah Heppola. Uh, she's most known from her uh, brave writing about drinking and her 2015 best-selling memoir, uh, Blackout, Remember the Things I Drank to Forget. She has been contributing short personal essays to NPR's Fresh Air, published in the New York Times, The Guardian, Bloomberg. Business Week, Salon and Texas Monthly, where she is uh, a writer at large. And today we are talking about her recent story titled In Mobile City, Everybody Knows Your Name from August 2021, Texas Monthly, a very fresh piece. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for um, inviting me. Uh, In my introduction, did uh, did I mess anything up?
1: No, you were seamless. <laughs>
0: okay. So before we talk about your wonderful piece, can we talk about uh, what made you a writer and what is your journey, how you found yourself, uh, you know, uh, doing what you're doing?
1: God, what did make me a writer? You know, I think the, the thing that seems most vivid to me in looking back is that I was extremely shy and was terrified of speaking and so so much of the internal world needed to be channeled somewhere and so i found writing very early and i think i was doing a lot of i, w- I was a lonely little girl i i just i was alone a lot my mom was at work and my dad doesn't really talk <laughs> bless his heart and my brother didn't really play with me i mean it was nothing traumatic it was just like I was alone all the time and I just started telling myself stories and, and, um, and I think you just learn a facility with it there. And, and so, so, so I learned from a very young age that I was better at that than most people, the way that like, I would imagine a basketball, you know, somebody that, that ends up playing professional basketball goes on the court at a young age and realizes like, Oh wow, I can do these layups and nobody else can. So I, I learned that pretty early and then I just followed that thread. And then of course what I found was that it was, while being extremely challenging, an enormously gratifying life path because it allowed you to kind of investigate all the things about life that are kind of the juiciest. And mm-hmm. all this stuff about like what's what's happening between two people, you know, what do we want? What do we versus what we say we want? You know, why are we here? All the all this all this philosophical stuff that I've always loved. Um, so so that's That's what, I mean, do do people answer that question with like more practical answers? Like, oh, well, I started here at this newspaper. (laughs) I feel like I just gave you kind of a philosophical answer. Uh,
0: Both are fine with me. Um, Okay. Yeah. And another thing I wanted to ask you immediately is uh, what does it mean to be a Texan? Because you are the person that moved uh, from the East Coast uh, to what you described in your memoir. Uh, as exotic as Egypt, as a very young age, but then you kind of escaped back to New York, if I understand correctly, but then you've decided that you are a Texan after all, and this is where you are, and this is where you really found yourself. Uh, uh, Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I would. It's such a weird thing to grow up in a place where you don't belong, but to realize that by having been shaped by that environment so profoundly, you kind of don't belong anywhere else. <laughs> um, I have looked for other homes. I spent years in New York and I've flirted with California and really love California. Um but it just it uh, for some reason I'm at home in Texas. I'm at home um traveling the roads. It's a huge state. Uh, that's not news. Um, and because of its hugeness, it's, it's incredibly varied. And so I think, you know, you asked me what it was to be a Texan. I think I grew up feeling the oppression of that, of that identity. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I didn't wear cowboy boots. I, I, I didn't, I wasn't a conservative. I didn't work a ranch. Um, that's kind of an old Texas thing, but what I've found, there's in, I think what I see in a lot of Texans, at least see it in Texas women a lot, is that there's like a real strength, but a real softness, and mm-hmm. I love that, and what adventurousness, because the state is so big, because it takes seven hours for me to drive to the other side of Texas to visit my college best friend who lives in West Texas, you know, um, mm-hmm. you become kind of rugged and I love that rugged part of me. And I love, I think I've always loved toggling between city and country, you know, like mm-hmm. New York was really a city, like it was a city with capital letters. And I it, it didn't suit me in the end. And then, you know, I think if I were out in the country, I'd probably be lost. But anything that allows me to kind of have a city life and then drive an hour into the country, which is what I get to do here, it just makes me so happy. I love, I love the feeling of both. So, um, but, you know, Texas is a place that a lot of us feel frustrated by when we live here, you know, like especially people have these, you tell them that you're a Texan and they kind of have these assumptions about you, like you own a gun. I've never owned a gun. Um, but I will say lots of Texans do own guns.
0: <laughs> uh, that makes sense. All right, so let's talk about the least usual city in the world, which is mobile city okay. that you uh, that you wrote about. First of all, how did you find out about it? and did you knew did you know about it before you decided to write about it?
1: No, I never knew anything about this place. And I've driven past it probably many times, you know, without knowing. Um, I learned about Mobile City from my editor at Texas Monthly. And she said to me, you know, this is a really unusual city. And I know it might not be the most sensitive thing for me to ask you to write about because it was uh, nominally about drinking, the city was incorporated in 1990 to bring booze to a dry County. It's just a, it's just a trailer park of, of Mm -hmm. 50 mobile homes. And because that area was dry, um, they wanted to incorporate it. So it really only had one business that she knew of, which was a liquor store. Um, but, uh, but I have to say, you know, I'm 11 years sober, but I will always love first of all, I love drinkers. (laughs) I just do. Mm -hmm. And I love drinking stories. I mean, I'm very drawn to things like that, but that's actually not what this story was at all. This Mm -hmm. turned out to be a story that was really about building community, um, and how you know and connect with your neighbors. So, so that's how I found out about it. And then when I, realized what it was I thought oh wow this is wild I I, I had no idea this was um I think it's about mm, probably 45 minute drive from where I live. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was it
0: easy to get access to the community did you, did you just like drive there and they embraced you and were ready to answer questions or? Um...
1: You know what's so funny I've done a lot of um I've done a lot of like site specific travel writing where like you're writing about a city. And so normally what I do is I go to the town center and I wander around and loiter around until I talk, until I, until I start talking to people. And then that's how I make connections. Um, and this was totally different. Um, it didn't have an access of entry like that. So I didn't really know where to start. Um, I had driven there and known enough that it was just 50 mobile homes. And so it's like, if you start lurking around, which by the way, I did at some point, like I, like during the course of my interviewing, I, I, wandered up onto people's lawns, looking at certain things and they would come out kind of like, um, hi, can I help you? Like I was very conspicuous. Um, yeah. it's really not a good idea to just loiter around people's property. So what I ended up doing was um, I found some people through their Facebook page, reached out to them, but, uh, but who I really connected to was their uh, mayor, Kenny Phillips, who was just a wonderfully welcoming, gregarious, good-hearted, interesting person. And once I knew Kenny, then that sort of opened up the whole, the whole, the whole city to me, all 50 all 50 mm-hmm. people there. Yeah. Um, but, uh, no, he was a wonderful axis of entry, but I will say, you know, one of the complications about this story and we never, we never really underlined it. And, and it was, it, we went through conversations about how to convey this was that, that, um, some of the the people in that town were undocumented. They were mm-hmm. undocumented and we, they did not want to participate in the story and they were very skeptical of a journalist. And so, and then a number of the people in the city didn't speak English. Um, Mm -hmm. and my Spanish is, is lousy. And so I was somewhat limited in who I could speak to. Um, and I had to be, you know, I had to be delicate. Like how do you speak about a place? Um, but not, and, and and talk about what's important and true, but not leave it so that there might be, like, I didn't want people to feel vulnerable because I'd written about them. So we had several conversations about that, my editor and me. Mm-hmm.
0: Mobile City came to being because they wanted to sell alcohol in a county that did not do that. Uh, but those things, if I understand correctly, changed for the county in 2007, right? I wonder if that... Um, if that changed things for, uh, for mobile city and kind of,
1: did it question its existence in a way? Yeah. Um, that's funny. I mean, you, we might think that from the outside, right? Like it's whole reason for being has now been thrown into crisis because the laws have changed. No, I think by then they had been a city for 17 years and, you know, it was a tight knit community and, they, I think they sort of loved their liminal space right on the side of, of, a, of a county called Rockwall County right outside Dallas. So, no, I, I think they loved that. Um, still, I've always loved being a community. And I think when Kenny came in, so Kenny took over in, I want to say 2017, and he really started running it like a real city, And that was sort of exciting. They were getting signs and uh, protections and things like that. But I think the real drag for the people of Mobile City was when the mobile home was sold in 2018. Yeah, that was really what I think threw everything into peril for them. So I think until that time, you know, the fact that, it was no longer dry around the area or that a specs had come in down the street, which is a liquor store that also sold booze. It really didn't affect the community. Um, What affected the community was that, was that, uh, that purchase.
0: Right. So let's talk about this new problem that they're facing, this new company, uh, Buena Vista and kind of different ways uh, they wanna they try to run this very quirky little community that, that is like that likes to do things uh on its own right
1: yeah exactly i mean I think one of the things about mobile city is that it had been allowed to kind of I don't know, like grow its own community and culture that wasn't exact and exactly map onto everything else, you know? And so Kenny was coming in and trying to gently change the way that the laws were to bring them into accordance. But I think what happened with Buena Vista is that they came in and just sort of like put down the boot and, you know, they started charging for all sorts of things that hadn't been charged before. There was waste and water that used to be free. Well, now you're charged for it. Now you're going to get fined if you don't, you know, take like one woman got fined for having a rug on her porch. Another woman got fined several times for feeding the stray cats. So there were these these things that felt like arbitrary. So they had experienced their their little 50 mobile homes as a kind of utopia. It was like a little Bubble of a community where nobody really bothered them. And all of a sudden, there was a new ownership and they were getting slapped with these different fines. And nobody really had any relationship to this management company. It was based in Dallas. And I never got to know them very well because they didn't participate with me when I reached out. You know, I certainly tried a few times. Um, I got the sense, I don't think this is, it would be too far. A field to just say that like this was a very opportunistic business like this was a business model that was just going to charge for everything they could and i don't know i've i've lived in an apartment complex like that it was pretty awful you know you just had this sense that like people were just waiting for you to to do something so that they could slap a 50 dollar fine on you it's it's a it's a pretty terrible way to live mm-hmm. um Yeah. And so, and so that really created a crisis in the community. And, um, and, and so they held a town meeting and several of the, uh, of the residents moved out and it was quite a mass exodus. It was, it was really sad because this was, some of these families had been there for three generations. I mean, it seems crazy because it's only been around 17 years, but there were mothers who had had kids who had had kids, you know? that it happened. And so they, and they moved out and, what, and it was, what it was sad.
0: Decided, what type of people decided to leave? You mentioned that this community has a lot of undocumented people and I assume mm-hmm. that lots of them didn't want to, you know, kind of argue with the new owner or didn't feel yeah. like they have tools to deal with this, this drama. Uh, were those, uh, the guys that left or?
1: So Kenny um, Phillips, who was the mayor and was my, um, you know, kind of my main Mm -hmm. source of information for this story, you know, he had just taken over as mayor when this was happening and so he doesn't have really careful records of the families. but but his recollection is, you know, yeah, is what you described. I mean, it was a lot of Spanish speaking families and and we don't really know if they were undocumented because of that actually, that information wasn't documented about those families. Um, that was and a kind of act, you know, don't ask, to, don't tell sort of situation in the community.
0: Right, but within the community, I guess I'm just interested in the politics of this community and this is what I was thinking when I was reading this, uh, this yes. article. Um, First of all, I was interested how this experience of such a small community shaped their politics, and also uh, you kind of uh, you kind of mentioned that this community, this uh, mixed uh, Spanish uh, Spanish American and American community, uh, lived together very well despite some possible language barriers. Can you tell me a bit more about it?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely thought that the diversity mix was lovely and easygoing, Um, I think because it's so small, you know, I think because it's so few people that you can't not know them. You you can't not know who they are. It's not like, oh, there's this kind of person, i.e. somebody of this color or this race. It's there's Julio and there's James. And so you don't really other people in the way that you might in those larger communities. Um, there was a story that got cut for space and I was I was sorry about it, but one of the women told me about um, she and her neighbor, Her neighbor was an Hispanic woman um, and they didn't know each other. She was white and they just started talking on the porch one day and they never would have known each other. I mean, they had very different backgrounds um, and they just became... Great friends, and they would sit on the porch every night and drink wine together and laugh. And you could hear their laughter kind of echo through the the city through the city because it's it's just these (laughs) fifty homes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's really. um, I was I was actually quite moved by the way that they all lived alongside one another and. You know, also remember, there's a couple of interesting things about this. I mean, everybody's living in a mobile home. I'm sure, well, I know, some are longer, some are smaller, some are taller. But I mean, this is not like a vast income disparity situation. These are people that are pretty much all in the same boat. And there's a lot of neighborliness there. You know, there was a woman, Brittany, who told me that her neighbor just mows her yard. She's a single mom. And he knows that she works all the time and he just mows her yard for her and her other neighbor brings her pupusas, Because, she, again, she's got two kids. Why not? And this is the kind of stuff that used to be, I mean, gosh, I don't, I, please don't think I'm waxing nostalgic about the 50s necessarily because there's a lot of problems with the 50s. Um, but I do think we have often lost a sense of neighborliness And a sense of knowing who lives around us and we become anonymous to each other. I know that in the places where I've lived, um, in the places where I've lived, I, I rarely know my neighbors. I, you know, I might, I might wave at them, but you know, even in New York where I had more neighbors than anywhere. I mean, I just put my head down in the, in the stairwell when I was passing people and So to see people open to each other, it was really quite lovely. Oh, and you asked how it changed their politics. I wanted to answer that question too, because yes, I liked that question. Um, Yeah, I I actually think, I I think it's created civic engagement amongst people that never in a million years would have thought they would be civically engaged. I mean, just the absolute opposite of the kind of person that you would find going into politics. Is what you see there, because see, politics has this idea of sort of like the halls of Congress and thick tomes, and you have to know a certain way of language. But civic engagement is just caring about where you live, <laughs> and so the people that are involved in in politics that are on their city council, their city council is is only Kenny and two other women. Right, um, but. They are they are people that never would have seen themselves in this kind of political engagement. What they care about is people. they care about the people that they live with and therefore they understand that this kind of language ie passing laws, um, you know having meetings, town hall meetings, whatever, this is the best way to serve these people. And I really found it moving. I mean, you know, I, I, this sense of service and commitment, not out of some kind of like, a lot of politics is so ego driven. And like, I just want my side to win. And this just felt like weirdly apolitical kind of politics. What I mean is uh, unaffiliated with like Democrat or Republican or anything like that. It was just like, how can we serve these people? So, um, national
0: politics uh, that ruined so many small communities uh, in the yeah. recent years did not necessarily affect
1: them. No, they felt completely unaffected by that. I mean, and I, I never heard anybody talk about that. You know, I think I did ask somebody about, about the riots and, um, you know, protests and different things that had happened in various cities over the last few years. And they said, no, 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 nothing like that. It's a very quiet community. It's, it's hard to, you know, I think when you see 50 uh, mobile homes, you imagine like a big lot, but it's actually, there's a snaking trail that goes through it, but it's only really only room for one car. So like, like it only goes one way. So you, 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 you there can't even be traffic there. So it's very, um, even though it's right off the side of the highway, so you get that highway noise and mm-hmm. there's a train that runs along. So you get the train rattling too. So it's, it's sandwiched by some ambient noise. And then it's this little bubble of, you know, it feels like maybe like a park like a public park or something like that, you know, cause there is a little playground there and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's very sweet, but the, you know, the, the, Kenny Phillips, who's the main guy in the story, you know, he, he cracked me up because he just had to teach himself how to be a mayor. And it's the funniest thing. I mean, just this idea that you'd be like, cause somebody had appointed him mayor and then he was like, well, I don't think we do it that way. And so he wanted to set out to learn like, well, how can we, how can we hold a vote so I can officially be the mayor? And then he had to like learn how you become mayor. And it's, it's kind of hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. but, uh, he also got help from some of the, the mayors around the town, around different cities. He started going to different city council meetings around, around the area and they mm. helped him. Um, but I just, I found this idea fascinating as just like, Oh, you're the mayor of a city. How do you do it? <laughs> right. Um, so what is the what was the
0: what is the reception of this community to your piece, uh, of your peace
1: oh, well Kenny wrote me a really sweet letter. Um, I have it on my fridge right now um, and it was just a gratitude for spending time with the people of his city Amazing. and and he told me on the day that it came out that his phone was blown up. And I heard from another woman in the piece that said she was so grateful for it too. So, you know, it's, it's interesting when you, when you go spend time in a home that's not yours, you know, a lot of my writing is about my life, my drinking problem, my body, my family, you know, it's mine, but a lot of my journalism is about things that aren't mine. They, I'm an observer, I'm a visitor. And so, you know, that was a special place and I wanted to, I wanted to, it's tricky because I don't want to say I wanted them to like it. You know, I didn't feel like my job was to make them like it. I felt like my job was to render it honestly and fairly and with loving eyes, which I I had, I had for that place. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was, I was pleased that, that they felt like that happened. That made me happy. And, you know, they hadn't been written about much at all. There had been one small piece in the Dallas Morning News about seven years ago. um, But that's about all you can find. So this was a big, a big media coming out for them, uh, for the city of mobile, the city of mobile city.
0: (laughs) And I assume that they want to maintain being being a city and they do not want to join whatever is next to them, even though the initial reason for becoming a city doesn't necessarily exist anymore.
1: Yeah, I don't think they do. I certainly didn't hear that amongst anyone. I mean, you know, I think eventually I think what happens with this property company is probably going to determine some of these things. Um, because that's just the real knot in the community right now. And if it were to be decided that they might have more protections um, through another city, maybe they would go a different way. But right now what they're doing, what Kenny is doing is adopting a lot of ordinances about fair housing. They didn't have them in the books at the time. You know, these are things that he's learning. So um, so he's adopting that so that... Um, moving forward, there can be a little bit more standard operating procedures about what you can and cannot uh, Mm -hmm. throw down, you know, charges for. So they're working all that out. And I think they're hopeful that they'll, that they'll get to stay a little city. I think it's a cool little thing that there's a, there's a little city of 180 people in a little bubble right by Sigils, between a Sigils and a fireworks depot, right off highway 30 in Texas. Yeah,
0: it's sweet. It's very beautiful. So just to talk for a few minutes about other things, how are things in Dallas these days? I understand that you are in Dallas.
1: Yes, I'm in Dallas. I can't seem to leave it. I moved back 10 years ago, telling myself I would move back for three months and then move on to Austin, which everyone knows is the best city in Texas. Um, And it still is. Austin's a wonderful city, but Austin's quite overcrowded these days. And so Dallas is on the up and up. Um, I've stayed here. My family is here and I love my family. Um, it's a town that is easy for me. You know, I have a beautiful home where I'm with my cat right now. My hat, my cat's hanging out with me while I'm talking to you. And, um, it's, my friends are here, but like, like, it's sometimes a frustrating city, you know, like, like sometimes I'm like, oh, this city doesn't really share my values (laughs) the way that I want it to be sort of about art and literature and creativity and sort of about commerce and redevelopment and finance. And, um, it's a business city, but it has a lot of heart and a lot of people with heart live here right now. It's hot, but I have to say, Texas has not been as hot this summer as it as it has been. And this is I feel like this is this whole I don't know, this whole climate mm-hmm. weirding or whatever we're going through where it's almost like like weather systems that have been so so much one way are changing and like our winter was crazy and full of snow and it rained forever. And then now I don't think we've hit a hundred yet, which is unthinkable, nearing into August. Well,
0: so, we, um for we Texas. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Um I also wanted
1: to ask
0: you about writing before and after publishing a bestseller. Uh, oh, is it yeah. easier is it uh, is it different?
1: Yeah. Um I thought that when I wrote Blackout, I would finally have proved to myself that I could write a book. Um and then what i learned is that i only knew how to write that book and i'd have to learn all over again how to write another one mm-hmm. so the second book has been enormously challenging um it's taken a lot longer than i thought it was going to but i think in a in a in a way not maybe not in a way but but this is why um I had to do more living before I could write about my life. I think I was doing that thing where I was trying to, you know, I put out a book, it became a bestseller. People were like, what are you going to write about next? And I was like, oh, what am I going to write about next? Because um, that was the biggest story of my life. I always knew my drinking story was going to be my big story. I didn't know whether I'd still be drinking or I'd be sober, but I had a sense it was going to be about drinking because that was a huge part of my life for 25 years. And so then I took that story out and I put it between two cardboard, you know, <laughs> pieces of, of paperback. Yeah. And then it was like, what, what's next? And so it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to write about. And I, I spun around for a lot. For a little while, it was about travel. For a little while, I was even going to, I was about I don't know. I was doing something on binge culture for a little while. I was doing something on college drinking. I've had so many different crazy iterations of what this book was going to, this next book was going to be. But for the past years, I've known that it was going to be about dating and singlehood and being in my forties and having not married or had kids, even though I thought I was going to have both of those. And so um, I knew that was what it was going to be about. And it's just taken me a while to figure out how I wanted to say that. It was an important topic, but it was also a topic that could feel banal if I didn't approach it the right way. And I had some of my own stuff to work out. So, and to answer your question, which is what it was like writing after blackout, like, man, I got locked up. Like, I know that I got really, really scared to disappoint people. Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of time kind of like, I can't do anything. I'm, I'm scared. See, right after blackout, I was like on an adrenaline rush. I was writing all the time. I was writing for magazines. I was writing for internet places. I was on the road. I was going, 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 but that was kind of like, I was still writing about blackout. Like I was still writing that story. And I was just getting like, as soon as I switched over to a different kind of like, Oh, now I'm going to write about a different topic and I'm going to have to learn it as deeply and, and sort of you know, intimately as I had the last one. Well, then it got hard again and I got scared and it's just a lesson. You just have to keep doing that. You know, you, you just have to keep learning and you have to keep letting yourself be new at things. Um, I always want writing to be easier than it is. It's usually hard.
0: Would you mention uh, uh, a couple of your uh, favorite writers either these days or in general, or maybe eternally? I don't know.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, Well, who do I want to mention? You know, this is, I I always get very self-conscious about this question because I feel like my answers are not going to be interesting enough. Um, because, I don't know why, I always feel that way. I, there's so many, so many writers I, I don't know. Yeah. I got really into Don DeLillo um, in the last couple years. Wow. And I, I've always liked him. Um, I read White Noise years ago, but I had never really, I don't know, I'd never really spent much time in, with his work. And I started reading Underworld, which is just this massive 900 page tome And I mean, I just, the rhythm of his language, the clip of it, um, ah, it was just mesmerizing. And I was so sucked in. It's really strange books that I remember whenever I was not in it, I wanted to be back in it. So I just had that restless feeling of like, I wish I was in that book. Um, But honestly, I I can hardly tell you what that book was about. Like I kind of know what it's about. It covers the last 50 years of the 20th century and it's there's baseball and (laughs) that's, that's my
0: problem with this book.
1: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah. It, uh, it was all over the place and, and it was just really just sort of like you were just following this thread that sort of unwound through the, 50 years of the 20th century. So anyway, after that, I, I read a bunch of other delillo books and I just got such such a treat out of like immersing myself in a writer again. I hadn't done that in a while. And it was, I think this was right before the pandemic but I was already kind of in pandemic living because I was between projects, I think and just reading all the time. And so I was able to do that. Um, let's yeah. see.
0: So, uh, one writer, is uh, more than enough for us. Uh, That's a beautiful recommendation, uh, especially for me. I'll give him another try, I guess, after such enthusiasm. Uh, And I wanted to ask you also about this uh, uh, long podcast that you were uh, working on. What's up with that project? Can you tell us about it?
1: Yeah. I'm working on a podcast for Texas Monthly, and it's about the Dallas Cowboys Cheerleaders who are an institution here in Dallas, you know, I grew up under the, in, in the long shadow cast by the glamorous, sexy royalty of the NFL, the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. And this was in the late seventies and they were really in their peak of pop culture, um, popularity, you know, they were on variety shows and they were on commercials and they were in posters and uh, there's nothing I wanted to be more than to be a little cheerleader like just like them. Um, I grew up to be much different, but when I moved back to Dallas they were still here and I got to thinking about how they shaped me, how they shaped the world. I just became very fascinated at telling the story of where they came from, um, what it was like for the women in that ride. Uh, You know, it struck me that we knew this story through what the women looked like over the years, what they looked like and what we thought of them. But I hadn't heard their stories. and I didn't know what it had been like for them. And um, I kind of didn't know where it came from. So it's been a historical, cultural, personal (laughs) investigation. And it's been a massive project. It's going to be eight episodes it comes out in September late September uh to coincide with football um I'm so scared I've never done anything like this it's been um a huge learning curve to learn the audio to learn um all sorts of things about about storytelling that I didn't know before but I've always wanted to because I I really do love this form of storytelling I love podcasts um you know, I, I love the, uh, oh gosh. Well, um, uh, right now I I listen to the daily. I listen to, um, there's a podcast called The fifth column that I really love. It's a journalism podcast. Um, you know, uh, I've always been a fan of, um, the classic ones, you know, the, this American life and, um, And, uh, any of those storytelling podcasts, um, I've had to stay, I've had to stay away from podcasts for a little while because, um, I was getting so anxious listening to really good ones. Like somebody sent me one called the line, um, A little while ago, and it was about Navy SEALs, and it was it was great. But they just they had such a sleeker production than I did that I was like, oh, I can't even listen to this; it's just making me anxious. Um, Do you have a name for your You know, we're still working on the name. We're like in final negotiations over the name, so I shouldn't mention it. But okay, we'll be there soon.
0: Sounds amazing. So that's late September. Um. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay uh, we will look it up I will look it up uh, well thank you so thank much you. for your time and uh, today we were talking uh, with uh, Texas ba- based writer Sarah Hepola, and we were talking about her recent story in Mobile City Everybody Knows Your Name that was published is published here uh, in August 2021 in uh, Texas Monthly thank you so much Sarah
1: Thank you.